This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Today is April 25th, 2023. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the magnificent Simon Belanger. Welcome back. It is earnings season and we are right in the thick of it. Day one of what feels like you know, a ridiculous amount of companies reporting at the close, uh, which we'll unfortunately just miss, but that's okay. So make sure you're tuning in weekly uh, to these Thursday episodes. We'll have mega caps reporting and lots of companies, you know, we always typically get to. And uh, in the meantime, if you're looking for updates on those companies, make sure you're following us on Twitter at Bredo Capital for me and uh, at Fiat Iceberg for Simone. Uh, so we'll be tweeting about them as well. Got a good mix of North American names. Uh, did you, before we get into it, did you happen to see the Leafs do things, do something that they never accomplish? Uh, a comeback in the playoffs uh, last night? <laughs> I saw it this morning because uh, with the young daughter, uh, now she's in the habit of doing her nights, but she wakes up at 5.15 in the morning. Okay, so you're so, tired. Yeah. <laughs> if you reach out to me past like 9.30, there's there's a good chance I'll be sleeping. But, I, notice, uh, I, I notice you're on it, Do Not Disturb quite early these days. <laughs> right when I'm starting my second shift yeah. of work for the night, uh, Simone's already on Do Not Disturb. Yeah, I was surprised though. When I looked, I was curious because, you know, I'm a Habs fan, but I want the, I want the Leafs to do well. Like I don't really have any animosity unless they're playing the Habs. <laughs> and, um, I was looking at the score when I went to bed. I'm like, Oh, no shot. I think it was like four, four to one. one or something. Yeah, four one. Yeah. And then like, you know, I, I opened the app, take the Jays score when I wake up and then I'm like, Oh, I'll see how the game finished for the Leafs. And then. They won the game. I'm like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> <laughs> I hope they can close it out, but uh, you know they usually do. Uh, Jays are on a bit of a – could go on a bit of a heater. They got a bit of an easier schedule. All right, enough of the sports. This is a finance podcast. This is the Canadian Investor. So we'll kick us off with our first name of the day. Yeah, so the first name is a Canadian name, one that has been in the news quite a bit, not just them. Uh, it's Metro. They released their second quarter 2023 numbers, obviously, with uh, all the inquiries that have happened with grocers in Canada between Metro, Loblaws, and Empire. I think they pretty much have the core, the market cornered. So it's been in the news because clearly people are targeting them because of the higher food prices and being such a a concentrated uh, market obviously metro has been in the forefront there so sales increased 6.6% to 4.55 billion food same store sales were up 5.8% they do come up with a food basket inflation which was up 9% for the quarter that's actually in line with cpi's figures that we've seen in terms of food inflation which have been around 9 10% on a year over year for several months now but the thing that tells me here is that there's a discrepancy between the basket and the same store sales regarding food is that either people are looking for cheaper options or within Metro and some of their properties or they're going somewhere else 
for better value. So that's what tells me in terms of discrepancy between the two here. Pharmacy same store sales were up 7.3%. Net earnings were up 10.4% to $219 million. Earnings per share was up 13.4%. And free cash flow was actually like pretty much flat, not to the dollar, but a couple million shy of uh, being flat for the quarter compared to last year. So I think all in all, obviously, it's a grocer and uh, pharmacy. You won't have crazy growth, but uh, pretty good quarter for Metro, uh, even despite some of the uh, bad press that they've been getting. All the, gr- I mean, I think they've all had their fair share of of bad press lately. I, I feel like Loblaws has caught the the brunt of most wow. headlines. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's helped himself with those like President Choice commercials, and uh, yeah, he's so Mr. Weston. Like, Weston or yeah, exactly. And just kind of being the face, but also the CEO moving from the board to the CEO role. I think he, it's just an easy target, I think, for politicians and people as a whole compared to the other two big grocers. So there's, I don't know. Have you ever, I'll have to link it to you after. Have you ever uh, read the Paul Graham essay called The Fierce Nerds? Have you ever heard no, of I haven't. Okay. Fierce Nerds is a, uh, it's an essay written by Paul Graham, the guy who started Y Combinator, you know, the most famous uh, Silicon Valley startup incubator. And so he's he's very well known in, in startup and tech land. And he's he's written this essay way, way back called Fierce Nerds, which is basically describing this characteristic of like a really smart tech forward like nerd, but a fierce competitor. And so, like, you know, (laughs) some of the huge tech billionaires encompass the fierce nerd, right? Think of the Mark Zuckerberg. Think of the Jeff Bezos. Like, ruthlessly competitive, but also, like, a nerd in their own right. And Galen Weston is the fierce nerd of grocery stores, man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no. And I mean, I guess Bill Gates to kind of Bill Gates, perfect. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, no, I mean, he, he does seem to be that way, unfortunately. Um, I think of all three grocers, Loblaws has been taking, I don't know, my perception is they've been taking the most flack out of the three. Uh, but yes. uh, yeah, no, that's a good point. Fierce nerds. Uh, I like that guy. I mean, I think I think he's, I think he's a fierce nerd. And you don't want to mess with fierce nerds in business, man. All right, let's talk about McDonald's. It's a, we're starting this off with food. Uh, we got Metro and now we got McDonald's. By the way, um, you roll up to McDonald's right now. Let's say you're hungry. I don't know if you're, I don't know when the last time you ate was. Let's say you're starving. You roll up to the window. What are you, what are you going with right away? What's your first instinct? Uh, McNuggets. You're going. You're going for the nuggets. Yeah, I'm always always been a McNuggets. How about you, dude? I I, I love. I, I can destroy a good twenty piece nuggets, but uh, no, man. I I'm going the most like I can't kick the college student guy out of my system by ordering like four value pick menu items and just making myself feel terrible after, you know, like three junior chickens, some fries, maybe a McDouble. <laughs> like, 
You're just- I mean, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard not to feel terrible after going to McDonald's in general. I mean, the only time I don't is when I go and get their coffee, which I've always found pretty good. Pretty good. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a pretty good, pretty good coffee. Yeah. Don't they say it's the old uh, McDonald's Canada's the old Tim Hortons beans? Wasn't isn't that the the PR oh, play that know. they had? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty smart on their move. I, I do agree. I think their coffee is quite good. A little McCafe. Um, mm-hmm. All right. So they just reported this morning uh, their their first quarter on the year. And I'm going to do constant currency numbers. Uh, it's pretty short and sweet here. Revenues were up 8%. The big impressive line item here is comp sales up 13% at 12.6% to be exact. Uh, and that was from pricing power on the menu. Now, if you look here, it's quoted, comp sales results benefited from strategic menu price increases. <laughs> That's a, you know, a pseudonym for, yeah, we have pricing power and we're not afraid to use it. And uh, they also had positive comp guest count growth. So I'm going to get into that as well. But most of this is just flexing pricing power and passing on inflation. So they're real good at that. You know, we got to look at the uh, what's the Big Mac index. That's one of the <laughs> it's a core, it's a core CPI measure. The Big Mac index operating income was up nine percent. They said here in the top six markets, digital sales now represent forty percent of system wide sales. So people like using the app to do the order, which kind of seems like a lot. Like forty percent. I'm gonna need uh, need an audit on that number. That's that seems like impossibly high, but um, they are pushing it quite aggressively. So that's that's quite impressive. That so that that is seven and a half billion, uh, which is a thirty percent year over year growth on the what they're calling digital sales. I don't know if that includes like the kiosk. Like, does that include the the digital kiosk? You know, when you go up there, I feel like that would be a little disingenuous. I'm not sure. Is 50 million active users on the app. So, yeah, I would think impressive. it's separate. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's got to be separate. Think, yeah, it has, to, be. Yeah, it has yeah. to be separate because I've used a kiosk before, but I've never used the app. So, so you're not contributing to this 40%. You're, you're, you're the 60%. No, I'm old school. Yeah, you can call me a boomer <laughs> if you want. I, I like to uh, give my order to a human being or maybe a robot eventually, <laughs> yeah. but so. The AI Something or point. someone, yeah, exactly in front of me. Uh, you know what? Old school and respectable. All right. So talk about some impressive comps here, especially in the US and, and the international segments. Very impressive from a traffic perspective and the pricing power that I just touched on. The traffic is interesting here because this is a business that just loves performing in tough economic environments. It's cheap. It's convenient. You know, it's a feed the whole family for less than the grocery store these days, even though you track that Big Mac index and it's more, you know, it keeps, it goes up with inflation. They're passing that on to customers, but it's, it's like a dollar store. It's like you and I, when we talk about Dollaram or we talk about you know, some of the US dollar stores, it actually doesn't matter nominally what the price is because their value proposition is that it's the lowest price. And that, that can rem- remain true here for a lot of these fast, fast serve, fast food, McDonald's types here is, is, is it actually doesn't matter if 
the price nominally has to keep increasing with inflation, their value proposition can remain remain strong here, and and, and that's happening. And you're seeing it with tougher environment, uh, tougher economic environments that the traffic is increasing uh, quarter over quarter. Yeah, and I think we have to, and that's one thing I've changed in terms of you is. You have to think about it more in relative ther- terms. So, yeah. yes, their prices might be going up, but relative to their competitors, they're not, and they're actually staying very competitive. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, if everything's more expensive, but this one is still the cheapest option, people will still gravitate around that. That's right. All right, we got, uh, what do we got? CN Rail here? Give it, we do give have it, CN, CN Rail, update. so... Yeah, so they came out with uh, their latest quarterly release. Revenues increased 16% to $4.3 billion, so pretty uh, pretty impressive revenue increase here. It wasn't actually because of much higher volume in general. There were some areas where it was higher, so it was mainly due to higher fuel sur- surcharges, higher volumes of grain export, freight rate increases, and a weaker Canadian dollar because they do get a lot of their revenue. Um, they report in Canadian dollars, but then they would get a lot of their revenue in U.S. dollars, for example, so that conversion can be uh, a benefit to them. Operating income increased 35% to $1.66 billion. Earnings per share increased 38% to $1.82. Free cash flow increased 4% to $593 million. And almost all their operating performance measure improved year over year. However, volume was down, like I mentioned, uh, 6% in April. This was not obviously in the same period as the quarter, but it gives you an indicator that, yeah, overall volume is a bit lower. And that's something they had guided for when they finished their full years uh, for 2022, is they were forecasting a period of uh, a recessionary environment this year. And they are still saying that in their view, based on what they're seeing for volume, uh, we're probably right now in the middle of a mild recession. So I guess, I mean, if you're going to believe anyone that we're in a recession, Canadian National Rail (laughs) is probably a good indicator because they see real time what's happening and they can actually compare that with previous years. And they also announced a new North American container shipping service Monday called Falcon Premium. The service is an agreement between Union Pacific, which has an extensive network in the U.S., Canadian National Rail, and GMXT, which is a Mexican and uh, also a minor, but they're a Mexican railroad, uh, railroad operator as well. Now, the goal here of this agreement is to compete with CP and their newly expanded network with the Kansas City Southern acquisition that was just approved by regulators and to better compete with trucking companies by offering a full North American network because if you have these fragmented rail lines, it's not necessarily the most attractive thing if you're a company looking to ship from Mexico to the US or Mexico to Canada, depending where you're looking to ship. So with this new agreement, it should allow them to steal some business away from some uh, North American trucking companies. They have their finger on the pulse. And I think that we're going to, our next episode coming out on Monday is about bellwether names. And we definitely touch on CN Rail because they disclose gross ton miles that they're moving uh, every single quarter. And like that's a metric that you type in CN Rail on Stratosphere and you get gross ton miles, revenue ton miles. Um, you know, 
freight revenue per revenue ton mile. So like when you break it down on a, a per unit basis, and uh, it's a great way to track the broader economy as well as the the business itself. This uh, we'll, we'll see how you know how this shapes up over the next. With when would the uh, KC Southern acquisition? When would those be? Would that be Q one for for CP? Or is uh, that, yeah, uh, I think it should be. Yeah, they were still right. They. St- it wasn't a trust, right? So they were kind of operating it, but it was operating separately as part of the trust until it was fully approved. So I don't know when they'll be reporting their results all in once with theirs, but it should be pretty quickly because I think pretty much like everything's already in place, right? For the transition. That's my right. understanding. Uh, but yeah, we'll see. I think probably in the next couple of quarters, I don't know for sure when, but we should be able to see that. Um, so, and the last thing I'll mention for CNR is honestly you have to give prop to uh their new ceo that started in early 2022 tracy robinson so she took over from i think it was jean-jacques Cruet, who really i mean was not the best <laughs> i'll just say <laughs> that and uh, the decision and it caused the money to actually go after kansas city southern when it was pretty obvious that it would never get approved by a regulator i think that was the uh the last drop in terms of him uh, leaving as a CEO. And so far, she's pretty much focused on, you know, making their railway more efficient and returning money to shareholder. And I think this announcement is also uh, just uh, a, a right move for them, to be honest. On the last trailing 10 years, total return dividend included, you've, ca- you've made a 13 0.8% compound annual growth rate on the stock price uh, total return since uh, IPO 15.3%. <laughs> it's pretty that? good. It's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's a boring return? company, right? Yeah. yeah. It's a company where you can just buy it and forget it type of company. You'll sleep well at night. I mean, yeah. if, if Canadian National Rail or CP start doing poorly, we've got bigger problems. I'll just say that. I wonder if there's going to be even more demand for these Lindy infrastructure stocks over the next 10 years because investors are learning really fast this year that tech is going to change at a pace that is going to make the internet era look like slow. Look like a slow rate of change of the, you know, the internet stock winners, how it changed the world, uh, the connectivity. I do believe the next 10 years is going to make that look like a snail's pace. You know, like the rate of advancement in artificial intelligence. And if we do achieve AGI in the next 10 years is going to change every single software company on the planet today. There's just no way around it. Uh, every single knowledge worker and these Lindy infrastructure companies. It's like, yeah, like, uh, maybe we'll have new technology to improve and make this more efficient, but you can't replace the fact that we have to move things physically via these Lindy infrastructure assets like CN rail. I wouldn't be surprised if there's just more like kind of flight to Lindy infra 
stocks over the next five, 10 years. I would not be shocked by that. I wouldn't be shocked, but people, you know, people are always love the allure of making a quick buck. And I mean, you called it for your bold prediction. I think I'm almost going to give it to you now in terms of the <laughs> Dude, year I, of the I think, AI. I think I claimed that, that W by like Feb, February 5th. Yeah. But I mean, people can't, uh, investors in general, like not every investor, but I think people generally invest. I mean, a lot of people just can't refrain themselves from investing in the new shiny object yeah, and whatever it is, right? And kind of forgetting some of the lessons that they may have learned, uh, you know, in the last five years or so. So uh, maybe we will, but I think there's always the human nature of making a, a quick buck or getting this hundred bagger, right? Uh, whereas, you know, plays like this, they'll be boring. They'll perform well. They'll probably beat the market, but you won't have that hundred bagger. That's for sure. You're telling me this can't become a hundred trillion dollar company? We'll have to get some serious inflation. <laughs> yeah, hey, nothing's impossible. I guess <laughs> impossible. Maybe on a long enough time horizon, it might be the only company we discuss on this entire uh, entire podcast that's still around. Maybe them and McDonald's. All right, let's uh, let's look at Netflix. This was last. I think last Tuesday or yeah, last Tuesday yeah. they reported. Um, so we didn't get to it, but we're going to get to it now. And it's one that we, we like to always cover because it touches on a couple important pieces. All right. So this quarter they added 1.8 net paid subscribers. So, you know, net of churn, they added net new 1.8 million paid subscribers which is now at 232.5 million paid subscribers. So over 230 million paid subs. It's promising that they're adding subs because you had that net churn in March 22 and June 22 quarters. And uh, there was the Russian factor on one of those quarters, but still, uh, still net net. It was the first like, real bits of adversity that the, the company was facing. And this is a prime example of why I tell people, if you own any business, if you own any stock, if it's Netflix or CN Rail, think of just a few performance indicators that really are really important for the business to keep track of. Because paid net subscriber ads is probably the most important metric for Netflix. And they had the top line revenue increase like high single digits, but the first time ever they had a paid net loss of subscribers. And what? It wiped out like a hundred billion in market cap that day. Like it was a 36% drop on a mega cap stock. And so that's really important to take note of, right? Is these, these businesses move on metrics that might, you might not see on an income statement. So, uh, keep track of just a few one, two, three names. This is why we built Stratosphere to keep track of these numbers for you guys. Um, so promising, uh, yes, but we got to be realistic here, right? This is a less than 1% quarter over quarter, year over year growth on paid subs. Uh, top line was up 3.7% year over year. So this is not the growth name it was once was, which is 
not news here in the first quarter or second quarter of 2023. But the company has known that. And this is why there's such a big push from the ad supported tier and the crackdown on sharing accounts. Have you got that uh, old uh, sharing accounts message on your Netflix there? <laughs> oh, I mean, now we're paying for both our parents. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're paying as uh, how the tables but, uh, have turned, yeah. huh? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, we they used to use our plan, and we just said, "Look, um, it's still cheaper for them because we have like the best plan, so it's still cheaper for them to pay ten bucks a month and not getting the ad supported." Yeah. Um, so just 10 bus on top. So we, we did it. Unfortunately, uh, we didn't really have a choice, which apparently Canada was the guinea pig for that. Yeah. I think they were. They, they yeah. talked about mm-hmm. that on the transcript. It said, uh, Canada and Spain, I think. What are they? Yeah. I know they didn't roll it out to the U.S. That, that I know. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Well, here's a quote. We're pleased with the current performance and trajectory of our per member advertising economics. In the U.S., for instance, our ads plan is already a total average revenue per member subscription plus ads greater than the standard plan. So this month, we'll upgrade the feature set of our ads to include the 1080p version as well, um, starting with Canada and Spain. We believe these enhancements will make our offering even more attractive to a broader set of customers and further strengthen engagement for existing and new subscriber to the ads plan. So the first quarter here of data on the ads business looks promising. The unit economics are are better than I would have expected. I still think we need a little bit more time. And their reports that they have disclosed, like it's like all the data they really brought out. I haven't listened to the call yet. I haven't looked at, looked at the transcript, but I, I did like a quick control F on ad supported and ads, and there wasn't that. I would have thought it would have been like, you know, every analyst question and, and maybe I'm missing something. I'll have to loop back, but um, I want to see more still on this. They did raise guidance and expected, uh, they expect to generate three and a half billion of free cash flow in the year. Um, so, you know, the business is churning out a decent amount of cash. Last weekend, I went to uh, this Netflix event in Toronto. I thought it was pretty, maybe it was two weeks ago now. I thought it was pretty well done overall. It was like stranger things. And, uh, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I felt like such a chump, like such a fraud. Cause I have no, no idea what the show really. I, I watched it's one the- of their most popular shows, if not the most popular. Dave well, that's why they're doing this event, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. no, I think I watched like a couple episodes of the first season, but, uh, you know, we're now what season four or five, something at least. Yeah, I think it was season four, if I remember correctly. Yeah, the latest. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> I was I was a fraud there for sure. Uh, we we got free tickets because my girlfriend gets sent some free stuff here, so uh, that that was cool. It was fun, but it got me thinking how like you know kind of well done it was, how kind of well thought out it was, and how much money they spent putting this thing together. It's like, what is the like kind of long term additional monetization efforts from Netflix to utilize the full value of the IP of some of these mega winners like Stranger Things and Squid Games and all the other ones. I'm 
drawn a blank on some of the really popular ones, but those, those for sure come to mind. Like what is the long-term kind of Disney-esque play for them on the experiential side and, and more, right? Like what's yeah. the Disney playbook for Netflix on monetizing this IP? Cause you got to think that that's got to be part of the long-term, you know, value extraction of all the money they spend on content production. Yeah, I mean, I think the IP is worth mentioning. I think there is limits to monetizing a certain franchise, and I think Disney's starting to to see that because um, I know for Star Wars fans, like I've watched some of the shows they have, but I I love Star Wars generally, but some of the shows, uh, the spinoffs, I watch and watch a few episodes and just didn't get into it. And I think that's what I've noticed with Netflix uh, with um, Disney is that. You know, some of their IP, I think they're starting to stretch them a bit thin. And at yeah, some like point, how I many don't... Avengers can I watch? You know, exactly. Yeah, that's a good like um, <laughs> I just yeah, I think there's I don't know more and more with them pumping out so much content. And this would apply to Netflix, too, if they do some spinoffs here. I mean, I think there's a, you know, there's a limit to that IP. I think that's, I don't know what it is, but I think yeah. you're starting to see it a little bit with Disney. I think there certainly is a, a limit, but there is a, a definite playbook that you can look to in terms of <laughs> there's a limit, but they sure like to bump up against it and extract it for everything it's got. You know, like, you know, we're going to be here five years from now and still talk, you know, still releasing the new Avengers, the new, you know, there's, they're going to keep milking it because why not? People will keep watching it and it's a valuable asset. So I don't know what that looks like, but I guess time will tell. Yeah, no, exactly. Now we'll move on to the uh, fun world of semiconductors. A couple names here. I'll start off with ASML. So they released Q1 2023. Um, I'll mostly compare their results to Q4 of 2022 and not Q1 of uh, 2022, mainly because um, it's the results would look awesome if I just used the over year. But because they had some supply chain issues and they were working to increase their capacity as a whole, I thought it would make more sense to compare it uh, to Q4 2022 because that gives a, a bit better baseline, in my opinion. And they were doing most of that as well. So just to keep that in mind. So net sales were up 90% if we're comparing versus Q1 of 2022. So just that shows you how crazy the increase was. But sales increased 5% to $6.7 when comparing to Q4 of 2022 on a sequential basis. They sold 96 new lithography systems that includes both uh, Deep Ultraviolet, DUV, and Extreme Ultraviolet. It's one more than last year during the same quarter. Net income was up 7.6% to $1.9 billion. And uh, the number, sorry, I misspoke there. The 96 is one more compared to Q4. Earnings per share was up 7.8% to $4.96. And if we're using, again, year over year would be up 186%. They currently have a backlog of over $38.9 billion, And they cannot keep up with demand based on their current capacity of production. They also repurchased 400 million euro worth of shares during the quarter. Management also said that sales 
came in higher than expected for Q1. When they provided their guidance at the end of last year, they were saying that demand would be slower to start the year and then pick up during the second half of 2023. And it looks like it's starting to line up to do that. So they also said they continue to see mixed signals in terms of some uh, of their customers when it comes to demand. But like I said, I mentioned they still have significant backlogs. So I think what they were saying is more towards the semiconductor industry as a whole, where their clients or customer who are chip producers, I think they're just, um, you know, it's a bit of a cyclical industry. So they are seeing some mixed signals in that retro or in that aspect. Yeah, I'm just looking here. Net bookings was definitely down quite a bit from the highs of last summer. But again, that was expected. You have this like extreme demand for overbuilding uh, after <laughs> no one being able to get their hands on. And look, companies like TSMC, what I'm going to talk about next, they they just can't afford to not be ahead of the curve on reserving ASML's ultra, ultraviolet lithography machines. It's just too expensive to, to mess that up. Uh, and so you, you pull the, the Jeff Bezos overbuild capacity and build a moat. Why wouldn't you? It's the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, it's their playbook, right? Yeah. Um, they did that during the Great Depression where companies were scaling back on spending and TSMC actually decided to go counter that. And um, I think it was Morris Chan that was a CEO at the time. And um, they decided to go against that and invest heavily in their production because they figured that if they were able to kind of go through the Great Depression, that they would come out on top of it, you know, years down the line and they end up doing it but they were you know at the time of that spending uh, not everyone thought it was a good idea for them to do so but it kind of shows that they have a longer view and uh, usually the best businesses are the ones that are actually are looking you know two three four five ten years down the line because yes you might have some lesser than stellar results short term but they'll more than make up for it longer term yeah, and if you pull out like you know a two-year stack, it's pretty good. Uh, net bookings at you know three point seven, I guess what is that three uh, three point seven billion in net bookings. That was up as high as almost nine in September of last year. But you look at it on a two-year stack, and the you know that quarter years ago was a third of what it is today. So yeah, exactly. it's, it's 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 hard to. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to zoom out like that, but it's important. And it's important for the reasons why I'm going to talk about here with TSMC, because, you know, <laughs> just these businesses are very similar uh, in, in a lot of ways that, you know, this is a cyclical business, but I'm going to talk about that actually in a second here. Because top line increased 3.6%, earnings per share up 2.1%. So nothing earth shattering here. And it's really not great. Like you mentioned, when you look at the sequential results, EPS and revenue down double digits respectively. But you know what is these good companies? And, and I do think these two businesses, ASML and TSMC are, are exceptional businesses is right at the top of the earnings release is what I just said. It was sequentially earnings per share was down 30%. No hiding it. Uh, you know, it wasn't on page two. It wasn't here. Let me cherry pick some KPI that looks good. 
throw it up at the top of the release. Uh, you know, you attract the shareholders you deserve. And uh, the ones that are thinking long term uh, are eventually attracted to exceptional businesses. You get exceptional shareholders. And I truly believe that the management attracts the shareholders they deserve over a long time period. Of course, quarter to quarter, that that may not be, be true, but over the long run. And what I think is going to happen here is... Yes, this has been historically cyclical business, the semi-industry, but I actually think that we're going to start seeing more step changes where you have periods of solid, steady state demand and periods of where it jumps up a layer and that becomes the new steady state demand. Because I think we kind of overshot it in 2020 and 2021 but we, our steady state is still way higher on a three-year stack for kind of demand for semis, uh, demand for lithography, and demand for foundry capacity. So I, I do believe that's, – that's at least my prediction here is that cyclical looks different for semis from here on out. Uh, if you can kind of visualize what I'm talking about. Do, do you agree with that take? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely will be less cyclical than it has been the last, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, just because, you know, there's chips in almost everything, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I think even my, there's probably chips in my desk because it's a rising desk. So. <laughs> 100%. Um, yeah, exactly. But there's chips in everything. I think we'll still see some cyclicality, but definitely less, um, a lot more, you know, Less pronounced than it was. I think that's the, probably the best way I think uh, to frame it. I think it'll be going forward is there's going to be cyclicality, but it's going to be a lot less noticeable than it was in the past because demand's going to stay relatively strong regardless where we are in the economic cycle. Right. Notwithstanding like a, a great depression type of event where, you know, everything will look cyclical, but, uh, uh, you know, notwithstanding that, I think it'll be less pronounced. Yeah. I think the long term trend looks more like a step function than a sine wave. Uh, yeah. You know, like a sine wave is true cyclicality, mm -hmm. the peaks and troughs, whereas this, like, I, I see the troughs being just no growth for a, a certain amount of time. But you look at ASML and TSMC, and they're not making the simple uh, analog chips. They're making the most advanced digital chips, right? And so that's what's going to have a lot of demand moving forward. You see uh, nice operating margins, still juicy 45.5%. Definitely some softening demand for the 7 nanometer chips. But again, zoom out on the stack. The 7, uh, seven nanometer and the 5 nanometer chips seeing strong secular growth. If you look at the different segments, smartphones was down the most. Uh, the only positive one was automotive on a positive quarter over quarter uh, demand for uh, these chips. But look at this. Okay. So I just pulled some data from Stratosphere on the segments. The smartphone segment has compounded, this is the last 10 years, has compounded at 12%. The internet of things has compounded at 30%. The high performance computing one has compounded at 29%. Automotive, 22%. Only one that's down is digital consumer electronics. Uh, and then they have this other, which is high single digits. The important ones have performed, man. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, and I mean, the, really solid. The 
Yeah, the consumer electronic too. Keep in mind, um, for a lot of people, that was that was a big demand because of COVID, right? So if every when everything was shut down, everyone and their sister and brother had to buy a laptop if they didn't have one, and if they had one and it wasn't powerful enough, they needed one to do their work, do school, whatever it is. So that was definitely pulled forward, and some other instances too. But there's other things. You know, we talked a lot about AI. I mean, the more there's AI usage, I mean the more there's going to be a demand for higher-end computing power that's just inevitable. Dude, have you seen that uh, the OpenAI came out and said the, the amount of NVIDIA chips that they need, the high-performance GPUs, <laughs> like if you do the math, it's like they need like 40,000 of them or something or like 4,000 of them. And they're going right now for tens of thousands of dollars each. Like that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> just from open AI, you can put on a backlog of like billions of dollars in sales for NVIDIA. They're going to be such an obvious winner here, but the market has already got ahead of that. Yeah. And TSMC and ASML will be indirect winners because yes. of that. Cause ASML provides the machines to, uh, the EUVs used for that to TSMC and TSMC makes the chips for NVIDIA. <laughs> so. I'd much rather own those businesses than the designers. And I know that like the, the designers have their own kind of trade secrets and moats and NVIDIA has been so far ahead of everyone with AI. You know, they kind of like, built the technology for this. Uh, There's such a key player in the advancements on this. But who else is going to be designing these chips? And what Microsoft came out and said that they're coming out with their new designs, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think AMD is also one to keep an eye on because they've kind of gone ahead of Intel when it comes to CPU, but they also bought years ago, which I believe was a Canadian company, ATI Technologies, which makes the uh, GPUs, uh, the Radeon cards. Those are um, mm. they're now property of AMD. So I think AMD is also one to look at if people are looking at chip designers, because um, I mean, I would bet on them over Intel. Intel is just yeah, it's it's almost Hail Mary time for Intel. You're hoping that they turn things around, and I do hope for them that it does, but uh, I would not bet on them personally. Yeah, good point. All right, let's uh, go to the last one of the yeah. day. I actually don't know what this is, so... That's okay. Yeah, no, I think this... Uh, <laughs> It's a little political, but again, I don't get into partisanship or anything like that. I think it's actually quite relevant for people who are interested in knowing more about it. So it's called the Markets in Crypto Assets, MICA, M-I-C-A. So the that's a new legislation that EU Parliament voted in favor of MICA last week with the effective date of the law coming into force uh, in 2024. There's not an exact date. It's 12 to 18 months after it's been passed. So probably mid late 2024 if I had to ballpark it and the regulation looks at providing clarity for companies and investors operating in the cryptocurrency space there are three big parts to the regulation 
asset reference tokens, electronic money transfers, and crypto assets not being covered by existing European law. Um, a lot of these that I mentioned are things like stable coins, uh, so legislation towards that. And the legislation will also regulate the issuance and trading of crypto assets, as well as the management of the underlying assets, so custodians, for example. It's the most comprehensive crypto framework in the world and the first of its kind. The document is a one. 571 pages and has been the works for two years now. Uh, it doesn't touch on everything, so they do say that it's very possible they'll have to modify it over time. But for the most part, the feedback that I've seen is that the crypto community seems to be uh, seeing this pretty positively uh, just because it create some clear rules for any companies wanting to operate in this space in Europe. The United Kingdom, which of course is no longer parts of EU, is also uh, working on similar legislation. And whether you like crypto or not, personally, I think it's important to have these kind of legislation come into place. We just have to look down south in the US where politicians from, you know, Democrats and Republicans, they can't seem to get their act together and pass this kind of legislation. So what's happening is the SEC led by Gary Gensler is interpreting existing laws that are not really fitting for crypto in how they see fit. And doing enforcement actions using that. So companies there are kind of forced to either, you know, have a settlement with the SEC or bring them to court or just leaving the U.S. altogether. And this is what we've started to see is just firms are deciding to move elsewhere where there's more clarity because it's a big, big risk. And from a Canadian perspective, I do hope that our politicians Regardless if, you know, whichever side of the aisle people are, I hope they can work together and come up with a similar framework that will provide some consumer protection, but also some clear, clear rules for the industry going forward. Because I think we have to be able to take advantage that the U.S. is actually not getting its act together here and uh, really provide a framework for innovation in this space because there is still innovation happening and um, there's... I don't think there's anything wrong with just clear rules for the space, which has been lacking for most countries, because obviously Europe is the first to, to have this kind of legislation. I have no, I have nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I encourage people to read up on it if they're interested. Uh, my big point here is I do hope Canada can, our politicians can actually work together um, and come up with something that uh, fits, you know, that protects Canadian, sets some clear rules, and uh, that can help this industry thrive and, you know, the Canadian economy in as, you know, as safe as possible. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. We are here Mondays and Thursdays, and it's earnings season, as you can tell. Uh, you know, the closing bell is about an hour and a half today, and oh boy. Uh, my yeah, markets team, are not loving it. <laughs> my, my team's going to be busy updating data uh, today. This is one of those days where it's just like, you know hunker down for a little while it's going to be it's going to be a busy busy day um and the data that we we put out so i just wanted to say as well so we just we're launching this the day this comes out 
an updated version of FinChat. I'll send you a link after this, Simon. Uh, version 1.2, it brings in analyst estimates, it brings in stock prices, it brings in revenue segment visualizations, more data, insider transactions, better prompts, less hallucinations, <laughs> which is a big one. Less hallucinations is an important one. And uh, so that'll be out at finchat.io. There's uh, it's almost almost 25,000 people using it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's awesome. And the other thing I wanted to add here is we are experimenting with video right now. Oh, yeah, good call. Um, yeah, so we're still, uh, we're using a new software, so we're still getting used to it, but I think it allows us to uh, share charts and so on while we're recording. So what we'll be looking to do is, um, you know, add some clips to YouTube, but also for our Patreon subscribers to essentially add the whole episode if people want to watch us instead of uh, listening to us or a combination of both and uh, just kind of seeing what's happening in, uh, you know, in my dungeon or uh, <laughs> Braden's uh, very open new apartment. <laughs> That's right. See our faces for podcasting on the, yeah, so the the tentative plan and this may change. The tentative plan is to put clips on YouTube of certain segments and then put the whole episodes on Patreon for jointtci.com subscribers. Is that, is that a yeah. correct summary? Yeah. Okay. And that may yeah. change, but yeah. So then people on the, the Patreons, the $9 a month, jointtci.com, you could see the entire episode. Maybe we'll upload them to YouTube as like unlisted so they get the link. I don't know how that's going to work. Yeah, we'll have to figure it out. There's still some, you know, work in progress. <laughs> infrastructure just, to determine. Yeah, yeah, we're using the software for the first time. So hopefully this recorded properly, but uh, um, it's coming. So we're we're experimenting with it right as we speak. And hopefully you guys are enjoying my audio today. I have the new, new audio setup that Simone hooked me up with. And I, I like how this mic is just sitting exactly where it needs to be. This feels good. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. Check that out. It's jointtci.com. I suspect within the next couple of weeks, you'll see something up there as long as our, as, as, as well as our portfolio updates that we do every single month. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.